Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. There is a mysterious legend involving a once bustling small village along the southern shore of the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. It involves mysterious deaths, men who went into the forest and never returned, workers and residents who feared for their safety, once populated homes and businesses left abandoned almost overnight. This legend says there was something lurking in the surrounding forest, something big and hairy that stood on two feet. The natives called it the Nantanok, which has a couple of possible translations. Some say it means giant, hairy thing. Some say it means half-man, half-beast. And then there are some who will tell you that Nantanok just does not translate into something we would understand. Today's guest prefers the latter. Got a great show for you guys today. Let's do a word from our sponsor, and then I will bring him on. Grab the oven mitts, because this news is too hot to handle. As we feast our way through mountains of mashed potatoes and cranberry sauce, let's chat about the unsung hero of the holiday season, the Manscaped Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. That's right, it's time to say goodbye to your man's old razor and make sure he's as smooth as the pumpkins on the doorstep. Hop over to manscaped.com and when you use code PNG, you'll score 20% off and free shipping. Get ready for your man to gobble, wobble, and glide his way through thankful season with the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. I have so much to be thankful for this season. I am thankful, of course, for my family and friends for this show, for you guys watching and listening out there. I am also thankful for a partner who is always looking fly. He is so well-groomed and attentive to the small details. It's awesome to look your best for your own well-being and confidence because you want to, but the care and attention that Lee applies to his grooming never goes unappreciated by moi. And I am thankful that it's all the more convenient and simple for him to continue his self-care routine with the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. Ladies, your fella can use it on both wet or dry skin. In low light settings, the LED spotlight ensures he doesn't miss a spot. And whether he is wrangling a full-on forest or knocking out some stubborn stubble, the dual skin-safe blade heads provide the turkey carving that he needs. <laughs> Happy Turkey Day! <laughs> so get 20% off and free shipping with code PNG at manscaped.com. That is 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com when you use code PNG. Be thankful this holiday season for the best gift of all from Manscaped. My guest is an experienced Bigfoot investigator and field researcher with a background in law enforcement. 
He has been featured on the Travel Channel and in the Small Town Monsters series, Alaskan Coastal Sasquatch and Dark Coast. In 2018, he was part of the first team to investigate Port Chatham in search of its legendary creature, and he was featured prominently in the Extreme Expeditions Northwest documentary In Search of the Port Chatham Hairy Man. He is also an author who wrote about the area, legend, and experience filming there in his book Abandoned, the History and Horror of Port Chatham, Alaska. Please enjoy my conversation with Larry Beans Baxter. I was born in Kentucky, uh, raised down there in, in Kentucky, in uh, western Kentucky, in a place called Muhlenberg County. Uh, there's a there's a song about it, Paradise, by John Prine. Um, I uh, grew up there, uh, joined the military when I turned 21. I said, I don't care where the Army sends me as long as it's nowhere cold and straight to Alaska I went. Uh, but the joke was on them because I actually enjoyed it up here. I actually, I, I love it up here. And I ended up staying. And all my life I've been interested in the strange and unexplained, ghost stories, UFOs, Bigfoot, stuff like that. And I got up here to Alaska and I was like, man, there's there's like Bigfoot stuff going on up here. I could actually like look into the Bigfoot up here. And that kind of got me interested in the subject even more to where I kind of focused all my attention on that. And I started uh, going out in the field and looking for Bigfoot up here. And that got the attention of uh, some other Bigfooters like Stephen Major and those guys. And that got me uh, into the Port Chatham expedition. And, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And uh, that's uh, that's it in a nutshell, really. That's the the, the 30,000 view of it. Uh, uh, I got into law enforcement up here in Alaska. I was a police officer and a soldier for 20, the last 20 years and just recently retired from law enforcement up here in Alaska. Wow. Wow. Um, <clears throat> is it as cold as I imagine it is all the time? It depends on where you're at. Um, up north, obviously, around Fairbanks and, and, and further, it's it's pretty darn cold. Uh, I live on the Kenai Peninsula, so we have a mix. Uh, like the other day, it was almost forty degrees. Today, it's twenty. So it, it just it just depends on on the day and and the weather. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I I got so used to uh, warm weather. I'm I'm really. Um... I'm not a cold weather person, so I, I want to see Alaska at some point, but I'm like, okay, I got to find an area that's like, you know, I'm not going to freeze my buns off. Um, well, okay, well, your your lifelong passion and, and interest in things like Bigfoot and cryptid, but other other things that uh, reflects on your show, Alaskwatch, you have a podcast. Um, would you introduce your my audience to your show? Yeah, it's called Alaskwatch. It's a show about all things cryptid in the great state of Alaska. Uh, I talk about all kinds of things, uh, mostly pertaining to Alaska, but sometimes I'll, I'll delve into other uh, subject areas and things like that. Uh, occasionally I'll get somebody uh, that'll contact me and like, hey, I, I want to tell you about my sighting that happened in like New York or something. And I'm like, uh, I'm trying to keep it Alaska centric, you know, so m maybe not. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to uh, to explore. There's Alaska has a rich history of cryptids and unexplained animals uh, there's all kinds of things up here. If you get delve into the native legends, they have all kinds of uh, strange creatures that they've been seeing for years. Uh, strange like chimera creatures, like a wolf slash like killer whale hybrid, stuff like that. 
I mean, all kinds of crazy things. Um, and not crazy, like bad, but yeah, yeah, crazy yeah. as in that's, that's very, uh, out there. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, of course, Bigfoot, all the natives have some kind of hairy man or big, big hairy person, uh, legend. And that's what makes it one of the most compelling ones to me is just because it's such a shared, uh, archetype throughout all that i mean not just here in alaska but all through north america even into south america they all have some kind of wild man or hairy man uh that it's large in stature and it just it's very compelling uh just to the point where i think if if it was just the legends and not the the sightings i think maybe you could dismiss it a little easier or if it was just the sightings and not the legends Mm -hmm. but the fact that you have both uh, makes it really compelling in my eyes. Yeah, yeah, and I, I that gets lost on uh, skeptics of the subject that there is this prior history. It's set a precedent, and it's not just oh stories, and it's not just all like supernatural. There is that element to it that there's these supernatural aspects to these beings. But some of these tribes were describing animals, just animals, just another yeah. animal out in the woods, and and yeah, I found that so compelling too, and especially in the descriptions is exactly what people are describing today. Yeah. And I mean, if you talk to filthy casuals, uh, <laughs> if you get that reference, uh, you know, they'll say things like, wasn't there one Bigfoot and it was filmed in, in California, you know, re- referencing the, the PG film, or they'll say like, Oh, well, didn't that all start, you know, in the sixties in, in California with um, the, the, footprints that were found and they don't they don't realize like up here in alaska i mean we're going to get into port chatham here in a little bit i I assume uh that stuff was all that was all way before the stuff in in california with with, you know the jerry crew prints or anything like that that was you know decades before any of that yeah yeah no no we are going to get into it and feel free if you want to weave it in it doesn't have to go a certain way today but uh yeah we will be talking about that um so you've you've done been able to be a part of uh, a bunch of expeditions like hands on like how how often do you get to go boots on the ground up there well i'm sorry my dog is <laughs> arlo he really wants to participate <laughs> okay. um during the summer you know we we have such crazy winters here that I, I i usually don't get out a whole lot during the winter unless we have a milder winter then i can get out some but during the summer, that's usually my crunch time because I got to get out and enjoy the good weather and, and, and use it as much as I can. Yeah. So usually from like May to August, September-ish, I try and get out at least once a month, uh, you know, for a couple of days. Uh, you know, it depends. Like just this last last summer, uh, we filmed the Dark Coast series of Small Town Monsters. Uh, I was out with them on pretty much the entire month of July, like we or not June, July, June. We were out at uh, area a cab and almost the entire month. So, you know, it, it just depends on, on what's, you know, I have going on, but yeah, I try and get out at least uh, once or twice a month during the summer. Uh, and I, I try and check out different places. I have one area where I kind of concentrate on that's not too far from me. And that's the problem with Alaska is it's so huge, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, I'll get reports. Somebody will be like, Oh, Hey, I saw this. Can you, you want to come check it out? And I look on the map and it's like 10 hours away from my house. And I'm like, I, <laughs> I just can't. I'm sorry. You know, like I, it would take me two days to get there. And so, you know, I have a few areas nearby that I concentrate on. Uh, I try out new places when I can, but, uh, 
you know, it's, it's kind of daunting when you have an area the size of Alaska. Uh, people say, oh, I'd love to come up there and look for Bigfoot. I think it would be great. And I'm like, it's 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 not really all it's cracked up to be because you've got such a large area to to like pick from and choose from. And then some of it, it's like, oh, man, I want to go check out this like Port Chatham. I want to go check out this area. It's awesome. Good luck getting there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you have to get uh, permission to even be there. Right. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, well, you know, they, they might take a cue from the Dark Coast series, which took place in a very, in a, in a specific area, something they refer to as Area A. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up yeah. the Dark Coast uh, because I had some questions about that. That was, I, I love the uh, series. I love that it's a limited series, listeners, uh, three parts, and uh, Beans is featured in there. Um, first off, what? how was your experience filming with uh, the Small Town Monsters guys? Uh, it was pretty great. You know, Alex and I were, were very similar in a lot of our uh, views on, on Bigfoot and how to look for him. Uh, you know, we both... We're, we're just very similar in outlook on the subject, I guess. So we get along well. Um, you know, he, he's a very uh, methodical researcher. He likes to go out and just boots on the ground. I'm of the mind, like, you know, there's a lot of people that go out and they like to do whoops, knocks, calls, stuff like that. I'm more passive. I like to go in and just set and listen and look and just, just, just check things out, almost like a hunter would. And I don't typically like to do whoops and knocks and calls and stuff like that, unless maybe it's the last evening, there hasn't been anything going on, and then I'll try to maybe entice some activity. But for the most part, I just like to go into an area and just sit and look and listen uh, and just be kind of passive. But uh, yeah, you know, Alex is a interesting researcher and he always brings in someone like uh, we had Damon Irons out there who I'd never met previously. And now he's a good friend. Uh, we had Rebecca Slick come out who I'd never met previously, but is now his good friend. And, you know, he's just like, Hey, let's try, you know, let's bring Damon out with his thermal drone. Let's bring Rebecca out because we almost never have a female presence out there. You know, he's always up for like, Oh, let's do this. Let's do that. So it's really, uh, you know, kind of, cause most of the time I go out by myself or just, you know, with, you know, a select group of people. And then I go out with Alex and he's like, let's call in this person and this person that has a specialty or that specialty. And, yeah, yeah. you know, it's always a great experience. And uh, I always learn something new when I go out with him and whoever he brings out. Yeah. Well, it's, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's fascinating uh, series. It, it's fun for me as an outsider wow. to see all of the, like the different um, ways that people like to do it. And you do get a sense, like there, there's those who just kind of more so want to, want to experience and, and allow it to happen. And then there's just those that'll, you know, they hear a sound and they're off into the forest They you know, they want to chase it down. They, they want so badly to, to get something. I mean, everybody does that. We all want to see something and to prove that this thing exists. Um, but uh, the Dark Coast series, that took place, like I said, in an area that uh, Alex called it Area A. I'm not sure if that's his own term that he gave it or, or if that's well known in the Bigfoot world, but what what is Area A? So Area A, it was kind of a placeholder name. It, it didn't really... We didn't really plan on for it to stick and we used it so much it ended up kind of sticking. Okay. Uh, it refers to a place near Seward, Alaska. There's a gentleman, uh, a very avid outdoorsman, uh, bought some land and built a cabin out there. And, you know, he, he's a lifelong hunter, you know, been in Alaska for years and years. Mm -hmm. 
not a Bigfoot guy, never thought about Bigfoot really. And he bought this land to build this cabin on and things started happening. He started hearing, you know, vocalizations he couldn't place. Mm -hmm. uh, things uh, would occasionally like go missing or then like show back up. Uh, people were hearing voices kind of in the woods. He would bring workers out to like work on the cabin. And there was just this, uh, just this cascade of things that, that, that kept happening uh, to the point where he's like, I think this might be like Bigfoot activity because he started doing some research into it once the stuff started happening. And he reached out to some researchers like myself and Alex and some other people and uh, had us come out there. And, you know, sometimes we'd go out there and, and nothing would happen. And sometimes we'd go out there and things would happen. Uh, you know, it was kind of uh, hit or miss. Uh, but when they were building the cabin, it, it was pretty consistent and pretty repeatable. Uh, for instance, the first time I went out there, he he's like, well, I'm going to fire up the chainsaw and we'll cut up some firewood. And he goes, that always seems to get him riled up. And, you know, because he started to witness patterns and stuff. But then after the cabin got built, it kind of died off a little bit. Personally, I think maybe the uh, the novelty of the cabin is maybe worn off for them or maybe they realize like, OK, it's just some dude building a cabin over there. He's not really bothering us. We don't have to worry about it. And they've kind of moved on. Uh, but occasionally stuff does still happen out there. You know, I heard one of the, the clearest Christmas knocks I've ever heard out there uh, one day, like in the middle of the afternoon. I was sitting on the porch of the on the on the swing and it was like two o'clock in the afternoon and i just heard just right up behind the cabin on the ridge just just you know the cleanest christmas knock i've ever heard huh. and you know there's all kinds of audio from that place uh, of, of vocalizations and you know strange like mumbling and voice you know almost uh, reminiscent of the um, sierra sounds uh, a lot of stuff going on there uh but it's not as consistent as it was when he was initially building the cabin and it really, you know, it grabbed Alex's attention. Uh, he listened to the audio and was really compelled to go out there. And obviously we've spent quite a bit of time out there. We spent an entire month up there uh, last summer. And, you know, it's just uh, really kind of uh, captured the attention of, of Alex. And now that the series is out, a lot of other people as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and part of that uh, pattern that you were talking about, too, I, I heard this a couple of times. Uh, wasn't there something with whenever there was a, just a female present like that, that got things riled up? They So there was a couple of occasions where the owner had um, uh, uh, some females uh, out at the cabin and on those occasions they heard what they described as a baby crying and they've actually got it on audio if you if you watch the dark coast series you can you can hear it um i'm i'm a little skeptical on it personally i kind of think it might be like a porcupine uh because oh. porcupines will make a, a similar sound but it is odd that it only seems to happen when there's females present yeah. um and, and uh, i believe um robert alley if you're familiar with him he wrote raincoast sasquatch he uh, has brought up the fact that sometimes uh, he, he believes that Sasquatch will make a sound that sounds like a baby crying when females are around to try and lure them into the woods. Uh, you know, that's a theory he has. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but, uh, you know, it, it's kind of compelling. You know, we hear the sound only when females are around out there. Mm -hmm. So may, maybe maybe there's something to it. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm on that where I, I do find I look for patterns that that is what compels me. If I can find a pattern in something, then, you know, then you can follow the trail to whatever. And that is compelling to me. So that stuck out to me uh, prior to the Dark Coast 
series, there was another series, uh, like a two-parter, the Alaskan, what was it called? Alaskan uh, uh, Coastal Sasquatch. And you had been called in on the second part because they had found something rather unique, um, something very, uh, an exciting piece of evidence. And they called you in. You are prior law enforcement. So you, you have a very... Uh, unique uh yeah. <laughs> ability I have to a particular call. set of yeah. a particular set of skills yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um <clears throat> so alex uh i can't remember if it was alex or the owner of the cabin that reached out to me initially it was one of the two i think it might have been the owner of the cabin uh he says hey alex um and those guys were out here filming and they found a handprint on the back of the cabin and he asked if i would be able to come out and uh swab it for for dna and they sent me some pictures of it and i was like wow that's that's kind of compelling and I actually made it out there. Uh, it was it was a week or two after I think they had discovered it, and it was pretty interesting because of the location. It was probably about six foot off the ground, uh, probably right around you know my head height, uh, right underneath the bunk room window, which is where a lot of people, when we have guests at the cabin, that's where they that's where I sleep when I'm in the cabin. Uh, there is another incident uh, when they were constructing the cabin of. Um, they didn't have that window there. It was kind of just framed in and they had a piece of plywood uh, covering this hole that they were using for entrance, a hole in the frame where that window would later go. And they had this large Yeti cooler pushed up against it to hold that plywood up. I mean, this is real, you know, like it's in the middle of construction, you know, they're, they're just, it's basically just a roof and some rooms uh, at that point. And um, sometime in the middle of the night, like three o'clock in the morning or so something pushed on that plywood hard enough that that full Yeti cooler slid across the, the room and hit the other, the wall on the other side. Uh, the guy, of course it's pitch black. The guys in the room start yelling, go away, bear, go away, bear. They can't see anything, but that's, they think it's a bear. So they're yelling, go away, bear. And then they hear something run up the hill, thump, thump, thump. And, uh, whatever it was, if it, I mean, if it was a bear, it would have had to be a massive one because it shoved that cooler all the way across the room. So, and this isn't like a this is a big Yeti cooler, like one you could put a person in almost. And that that was pretty interesting. And that's the same room where this handprint was found, like right on the this outside siding of that room uh, where people sleep. There's a window in there. A lot of people sleep when they sleep in there. They close the window, the blind. I usually leave it open, uh, but. So they call me out there. They're like, hey, can you take a look at this? I get out there and sure enough, there's a, a pretty, by the time I got there, it faded a little bit, but not, not much. You could still see it. You could still see where the fingers were. So I, uh, I took some, some swabs just like, I mean, normal swabs that I would have processed a crime scene with, you know, I like the capture swabs that have the little plastic cap over them that you can close them and protect the, the swab portion. Uh, so I took, I think it was six swabs or something like that of it, uh, you know, from each couple from each finger and a couple from the palm. And uh, we've sent it off. I believe uh, I sent it to Doug Highcheck and he sent it off for analysis. We're still waiting to hear back on that. It's going to, it takes, that stuff takes a while. I mean, the crime lab, uh, you were looking at like six months or, or more sometimes for oh. you know, DNA. Oh, wow. So, so uh, I'm not sure where Doug sent it off to, but I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be a similar timeline. Uh, but I'm really excited to, to see what that yields because it was just in a really weird place. It was, like I said, it was six feet off the ground. There's a large water tank uh, in between. A per if a person was standing there, it would be in between the person 
and and where the the handprint was so they'd have to stand on the other side of the of the water tank lean over and, and put their hand up against the cabin and it's at a weird angle uh just not where you would expect a handprint to be uh i was out there when we were working on the um, when they were installing the gutter system and stuff for the cabin, there's a, like a rain collection system out there. Mm-hmm. And the only time that I could imagine that handprint would be put there would be during that, that, that process. And for it to go unnoticed for well over a year, like a year and a half, maybe even right. two years. I, I don't It all runs together. I've been going out there for a while now. Uh, it just seems kind of weird. I think it was probably placed there not too long before Alex and those guys got there. And it, it's a really, it was a really um, waxy, like white substance that you hear a lot of with suspected uh, Bigfoot handprints. Uh, supposedly they have really oily skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically if a person, you know, leaves uh, a handprint or something like that, it usually will fade and it's not really readily visible unless you maybe throw some fingerprint powder or something on it and then you can see it. Uh, this was visible without any type of powder or, or anything like that. It just popped out. You know, you could just see it. And I, I'm really looking forward to those results. Uh, you know, I guess there's always a possibility that it, it is a human print. I, I don't I don't know. I, would, I think that I'd love to know the story of how it got there if it's human. But uh, I, I told my wife, I'm like, we're going to get some champagne and and, and put it away. And, and when those results get out, hopefully we can pop that out and, and pop a cork and, and have some champagne. Cause I'm hoping it's going to be uh unknown primate. Yeah. Uh, but, but who knows? I mean, and like I said, I, I know that if I get that DNA, that's unknown primate, I know that's not going to be enough to prove to the world that Bigfoot exists. I, I'm, I'm not, I, I've caught to that point. I've been Bigfooting long enough that I know that's not going to prove it. Right. It's going to be really compelling and it's going to really it might convince a few people, but it's not going to like convince the world. You know, they're not going to officially recognize the species or anything that it would be enough for me. Like that would be it for me. I'd be like, okay, they're real. You know, maybe I can, I might move on to something else next. You know, I might go look for a lake monster. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, that that's a a really compelling piece of evidence. Um, I can't wait to get the results, but at the same time, I'm like, Oh, what if it comes back as human? It's going to be so disappointing. <laughs> yeah, it, it will. But at the same time, like that's that's why you do this. You know, we, we it's you find you prove all of the things that you can possibly prove to be otherwise so that whatever is left over, that's what really just ignites people's passion about this topic. Like there's so many compelling pieces, you know, unidentifiable hair samples and just the footprints with the dermal ridges, things that aren't going to convince the scientific community of course if somebody's going to be skeptical about this subject it's not going to convince them but these are the things that bring somebody like me who's new to the subject anybody who's new to the subject in and really perk up and start paying attention like there's there is something very strange going on here yeah yeah well and, and kind of knowing what i know about how like wildlife conservation fishing game uh, and stuff works i i seriously ponder that if a body is ever collected or found that that would be enough uh i i honestly i know people are like ah, he's crazy you know a body would do it for sure honestly uh i think if they if they was to find or come across a body uh and especially if it's just one they could be like well that's it that's the last one they're they were here but now they're gone right. you know right um i think i believe doug highcheck mentioned 
you know, he thinks that there needs to be two bodies, uh, a male and a female, to prove that there's a breeding population out there. Right. But at the same time, even if you had the two bodies, what's to say they wouldn't be like, well, these are the last two, you know, too bad, we missed out, <laughs> you know? So uh, oh, it's never good enough. <laughs> I, I almost feel like you would have to have a male female body and really, really, really good footage of a family unit mm. still out there mm -hmm. uh, to, to prove it. Uh, but of course, I'm, you know, I'm old and cynical, you know, uh, police officer. So, you know, I'm like, you know, I, I've reached that stage where I'm just like, I don't think a body would do it. Uh, at least not, you know, to the point to where they were put on a list where they were existed. I think they would probably just write it off and be like, yeah, this is probably some kind of a genetic anomaly or this is uh, the last one and there aren't any more. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sucks. But uh, yeah, there, there's a, a level of cynicism there that is just kind of logical at this point with how much evidence is enough. Oh, it's not. None of it is. Okay. Well, yeah. even if well, we get a body, is it going to be good enough? I've, cause people say, well, no, there's not really any evidence. I hear this all the time. Well, there's not really any evidence. Mm -hmm. I've put people in jail. I've taken people's freedom from them yep. with less evidence than there is for Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you've got on the criminal side, really all you need is an eyewitness account and some grainy video footage. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Yeah. All I got to do is have one person say, that guy stole something out of my store. Here's the video. The video looks like it was taken on, you know, like there's a bird in the camera drawing a picture of what it sees. You know, it's like some grainy, like video uh, security system from like the 1990s. And it vaguely looks like the suspect in question. Yeah. That's probable cause. I go out arrest the guy or give him his summons and he goes to a jury trial. The jury looks at that. Here's the evidence and puts him in jail. So that's enough to deprive someone of their freedom. Mm -hmm. And there's just as much, if not more similar evidence of the existence of Bigfoot, but that's not enough. Isn't that nuts? The same can be said for uh, the UFO phenomenon. I just got through a season on UFOs and uh, I had Kathleen Martin on the show and and she was telling me, uh, you know, some of the stuff that she had in her collection of evidence, it would convict in a court of law. And it's still, yeah, yeah, that's the sucky part of all this. But um, uh, what was, uh, I had a thought, one more thought on the, uh, the handprint. Um, I was just thinking like, it doesn't really make sense, does it, to think that, oh, well, this is a handprint from somebody who put this together, who put the material up, you know, and they left behind a handprint because that was, you said it was a year, year, year and a half before that it was. Cor correct. And when Alex found it, it was more prominent than when I arrived. Right. So he found it. It was like it popped like it was that, you know, that white, yeah. like waxy substance you know he could see it easily i got there i could still see it but i kind of had to shine some oblique light on it to really make it stand out so from the time alex found it to the time i got there to swab it uh it had which were, was only like a week or so it had faded so if it had been there for over a year why would it suddenly start to deteriorate in that week and not before that yeah absolutely absolutely all right um well, thank you for all of that. Let, let's talk Port Chatham. Okay, so <laughs> you were involved with a documentary called In Search of the Port Chatham Hairy Man. Oh, 
We'll talk about it. Uh, you were also in one called Bigfoot Encounters in the Pacific Northwest, which is actually how we are here today. That, that's one of the first documentaries I watched in this search, and I was just uh, blown away. Uh, both of those were done by Extreme Expeditions Northwest, LLC, Stephen Major. Uh, I was just curious, how hmm? how did that connection take place? How, how did you get involved with them? Uh, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a crazy story. So I went to I, I had been uh, getting into the Bigfoot thing and going out into the field and, and kind of looking and I was so interested. You know, I went to the International Bigfoot Conference that was in Kennewick there in Washington and they had had some they had some special guests there. And one of those special guests was Adam Davies. Well, during the VIP dinner, I sat at Adam's table and, you know, we chatted and we talked and we became, you know, friendly. And I started, you know, I was following him on social media. Well, he posts one day, he's like, Hey, I'm going to be off social media for a while. I'm going to Alaska. Uh, you know, cheers everybody. You know, Adam is. And, uh, so I messaged him. I'm like, Hey, I'm in Alaska. If you need anything, let me know. I'm here in Homer. And he's like, actually I'm coming through Homer. So what that trip was, was him and Steven coming up here to do like a scouting thing for the documentary for the In Search of the Port Chatham Harry Man documentary. Okay. And so they got to Homer and they, Adam, I told, I offered, I offered Adam, uh, you know, I was like, Hey, let me know. I'll buy you a drink or something when you come through. So he calls one day and he's like, Hey, uh, we're here. We're at this like bar down the, the road. You, you know, do you want to take, I'll take you up on that drink if you're available. And I was like, sure. So I head down there. Well, Steven's there with him. So me, him and Steven, Steven and my wife sit at this table in this bar and we talk for probably a good two hours about Bigfoot. I'm telling them all the stuff I know about this area, about Port Chatham, all this stuff. Uh, I really kind of impressed Steven with my knowledge of the subject locally. And so we parted ways and I kept in contact with Steven. Well, Adam was supposed to be in the In Search of the Port Chatham Harry Man documentary and it, it, it didn't work out. Like he had work commitments. He couldn't do it. So Stephen is like, hey, do you, do you want to be in it? Because I need, you know, it would help if I had somebody locally, you know, you can provide firearms for protection and, and stuff like that. You know, it's, it'd be easier for me to get them from you than to bring them up there. And I was like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll do it. And that's kind of how I got involved in the in the In Search of the Port Chatham Harry Man documentary. And it was basically because I, I bought Adam a drink and then... Uh, I met Steven and <laughs> and I lived locally and had access to, to firearms and knowledge of the local wildlife and stuff like that. So I went along and, uh, you know, brought my, my knowledge of the area, plus, you know, my knowledge of local wildlife and, and my shotgun and, and pistol and stuff like that. So that we could feel safe and bear spray. And uh, that's kind of how it all came together. And yeah, it was, uh, it was a crazy experience. Like I still, I was like, walking i remember like taking my first steps off the little boat there to, to port chatham I'm thinking like this must be like the what neil armstrong felt like when he stepped on the moon you know like i felt <laughs> like i was going into like uncharted territory <laughs> yeah well you really were in a sense yeah <laughs> been been a while since people had been there well how long before uh that took place like when did you actually start getting interested in port chatham and, and taking that deeper look at it well, I always heard the story, What like when I moved up here and anytime anybody brings up Bigfoot in Alaska, you know, Port Chatham always comes up mm -hmm. in the conversation. And it's, I mean, from where I'm sitting right now talking to you, it's like 40 miles over there. Like it's not very far at all from where we're at, but to get out there, you know, you have to, 
you have to pay a lot of money for somebody with a boat to get you out there. Sure. Um, depending on the size of boat you want to take up there. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's just ingrained in the, in the history of Alaska and of Bigfoot. You can't talk about Alaska and Bigfoot without bringing it up. And people had brought it up. I'd read up on it. Um, there was an article in the local paper here a few years ago that really kind of, it was a Homer Tribune article. If you, if you search Port Chatham, Alaska, eventually you'll come across it. And that's kind of what it went viral. Uh, and that's kind of what brought the legend of Port Chatham, I guess, out into the mainstream. And there's a interview there with one of the elders that grew up there. And she talks about some of the legends and, and why Port Chatham got uh, abandoned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I come across that when it came out. And so I'd always been aware of it and I'd always wanted to go there, but I could never like convince anybody to take me or it was always like cost prohibitive. And yeah. so I'm really glad, you know, Stephen was able to to come through when he did and, and make the documentary because it really, you know, it's an opportunity that not a whole lot of people get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you did too. Uh, the documentary was outstanding. It was incredible. And uh, yeah, you all were, oh, you're very brave. I, I got to say, like in the course of my show, I'm, I'm fairly skeptical. I'm a skeptical believer about a lot of things. So there's, there are, it's a handful of things that I've come across uh, stories or ideas or phenomena that really just give me the willies. And the story of Port Chatham did. It's one of them. Um, yeah, just incredible. And and the book, you know, you wrote a book a couple of years afterwards mm-hmm. uh, that details the legend and the history and also personal experiences on the documentary. It was just incredible. So listeners, please check out the book. I'll link it below. But uh, why don't you, I know people in the Bigfoot world know this story, but I didn't. I, I had no idea this thing existed. The story was there. Um, and I've got a lot of ears on the show that are not necessarily Sasquatch people. So who have not heard it, would you give us that history of Port Chatham? What happened there? So Port Chatham was a, a little, a small fishing village. It got founded in the early 1900s. Uh, they actually had for such a small town, they had a lot of infrastructure. They had, um, they had a, a processing plant for the fish. They had a cold storage um, building for the for the fish. They had a, a large sawmill, which would cut the fish traps that they would use from the local uh, forest. And you know, it, it was a it was a thriving little town. And then in the 1930s uh, is when things kind of started to go south. Uh, you heard about people that were going. There was a prospector that went up looking for gold. He went missing. Uh, there was a gentleman that owned a logging operation. He was found deceased. Uh, they said that his he had uh, some trauma to his head, that a large piece of uh, logging equipment had struck him in the head, and it was too heavy for a person to lift. So that kind of got blamed on what the locals call the Nantanok, which is like the local Bigfoot legend. And, you know, they, they describe it. it. It says sometimes, it depends on who you talk to, Nantanok can mean different things. Some people describe it as saying like, it's a giant hairy thing. Some people just say, well, it means Bigfoot. And some people say, well, it doesn't translate well. Like there's not a literal translation, which is the explanation that I like is that there's not a literal translation. Um, They do like a lot of the other uh, Alaska natives, they do kind of attribute some supernatural powers to their Nantanok. Uh, He can shape shift. He's supposed to have glowing red eyes. Um, 
There's actually a story. Uh, it's a lot like almost similar of the Kushtaka in Southeast where people can actually turn into Nantanox, uh, become hairy men. There's a story of a hunter who was out with a hunting party and told uh, his hunting uh, buddies like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm turning into the Nantanox. Like, let me, let me off here. And they, they kind of, Oh yeah, you know, whatever you're, you're, you're full of it. And he becomes pretty insistent. So they do. Uh, later on, they see him around a village. He's getting big and hairy and he can barely talk. And he tells one of his buddies, he says, Hey, tell my wife uh, to, to stay at home and, and, you know, lock herself in the house with the kids because I'm afraid I'm, if I see her out, I'm going to take her and turn her into an Antonach. So there's some supernatural elements to their beliefs in, in Bigfoot and the Antonach. I don't necessarily, I mean, I, I don't know where those would come from. I mean, I, possibly, you know, there's a story of a, a hunter that shot an Antonach. It runs into like a thicket. He goes into the thicket to get it. And then the mouse runs out of the thicket and he thinks, oh, the Bigfoot turned into the mouse, you know, so they can hmm. shapeshift. So I, I, I don't know. I, I'm more of a grounded researcher. I think probably there's a more uh, rational explanation for a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, but then again, like, I don't, I don't know, like maybe there is something supernatural about them or magical. Uh, I'm going to have to see that for myself mm-hmm. before I, I go there, before I get that in, in that direction. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that I don't think there is any like supernatural or more mystical elements to life. I just, I got to see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so in the thirties, you know, you had people going missing, you had people turning up dead. Uh, at one point, the workers in the, in the processing plant, they go to the owners and they're like, look, something's out here. We don't feel safe. Uh, if you don't do something about it, we're going to walk. So they basically kind of threatened to strike uh, the owner of the, the processing plant, uh, they kind of relent. They end up hiring some like uh secure, like Pinkerton type security guards mm-hmm. to come in and kind of pull security around the town while the workers are at work. And that seemed to, to satisfy the workers for a while. Then, uh, as things go on, like by 1950, the town was abandoned. There was one resident left, the postmaster. He uh, left in the 1950s. And, you know, with a lot of, go- you you have your typical ghost story or your ghost town story uh, where a town is founded around some kind of resource like gold or whatever, coal or whatever, what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they exploit the resource to the point of depletion and then the town kind of dies and then you're left with a ghost town. Yeah. Well, Port Chatham doesn't follow that. Uh, Cause you have, you know, the town, the, they're there for the fish and the lumber. And then in 1950, when they left, well, there were still fish and lumber there. Uh, so it doesn't fit the typical ghost town narrative. Uh, it, over the years, you know, I mean, the, the natives attach a very, uh, you know, dark history to the place. Uh, and I've found in my experience and my research, it's kind of 50, 50, uh, you might go up to one guy and say, Hey, what do you know about Port Chatham? And they'll be like, Oh my God, it's the most evil place. Don't go there. There's bad things there. It's evil. If you go there, bad things are going to happen. And then you'll ask the next guy you meet on the street, Hey, tell me about, about Port Chatham. And they're like, yeah, it's just, you know, there's woods, there's moose and bear over there. There's nothing mystical to it. Hmm. So it, it's pretty much, even among the native community, it's kind of split 50, 50, uh, among those that believe and those that don't. Um, in my experience, I've found that, or in my research, I found that it's kind of like uh, it's, it reminds me a little bit of the Salem witch trials. Mm-hmm. 
So you you know how the Salem witch trial is just this big like if if you if you follow the the history of it, you know, you're led to believe that it was just this horrible massacre where all these people were like burned at the stake. Mm-hmm. And while there's some truth to it, there was witch trials uh and there were people executed. It wasn't to the frequency or the manner that that they say there was. Uh and Port Chatham is kind of the same. There there was Bigfoot activity there. There were Bigfoot sightings. There were disappearances. Uh, there were some odd deaths, although really the only one I can really point to is Mr. Camluck, the gentleman with the logging equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually did quite a bit of research trying to get his death certificate and it cannot be found. So, I mean, you, you can look at that one way or the other, like, oh, well, it, it just, you know, there's nothing suspicious about it, or maybe it was hidden for a reason. I, I don't know. I'm not yeah, I'm not really a conspiracy guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think most conspiracies can be explained with, with ignorance rather than malice. Uh, you know, because I've I, I worked in the government pretty much my entire adult life, and I definitely came by more ignorance than I did malice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so y- you've got that. You know, you've just got all these these bad stories, the stories of the Nantanok, uh, kind of circulating. They kind of grow and, and expand. Uh, but like I said, there was. Bigfoot sightings there. Uh, there was a gentleman in the twenties named Sergius Moon and he saw one walking along the beach. He said it was carrying a club, which I think is, that's a fascinating story because I want to know why I use the word club and not stick or branch. Mm-hmm. Like was it, was there something special about it that he made it? Yeah. It's pretty the, the specific, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Was it like, would it have like something wrapped around the handle and the Nantanox initials like carved on it? Like why did he call it a club and not like just a stick? Uh, so while, and, and you hear different, you hear people trying to debunk it in different mm-hmm. ways. Uh, there's one that's going around about how like, oh, that's the year they finished the highway and uh, the, they built the, the highway down to reach Homer and that's what killed the town. Well, that, I mean, okay, but why is there still Sildovia, Nanwalik and Port Graham? Like there's still three villages over there across the bay that are still there today. Right. Why didn't they die when the highway was built? Right. So, you know, people have come up with a lot of stories to try and debunk it and get rid of it. Uh, but you still, you know, there's still, there's still something to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may not be the Bigfoot massacre that everybody makes it out to be, but there's still some validity to it, I feel. And especially, I mean, you're looking at it on a map. It's at the southern tip of the Kenai Peninsula. Yeah. You're as far south as you can get. Uh, in my opinion, I mean, that's a perfect storm. Because okay, you've you've got the if these creatures live there, which I, I'm fairly certain they do, you've got them pushed down basically to the southern tip. They can't go anywhere else. The ocean's behind them. That's it. You've got this town here. They're catching up all the fish. They're cutting down all the trees. I mean, that's a perfect storm for uh, territory protection. If I ever heard it, mm-hmm. so that in my mind could explain some of the aggressive behavior and aggressive stories that come out of the area protecting territory yeah yeah okay basically pushed them pushed them into a corner up against the ocean there and they've got nowhere else to go you're catching all the fish you're cutting down all the trees and it might just be the the perfect storm for them to go okay that's enough (laughs) yeah yeah well if that's the case do you i mean does that lend any 
credence at all to these uh, deaths that are reported? Because there, there seemed like a, an overabundance of just kind of weird disappearances. And of course, Mr. Kamlock's uh, death, um, there, there's an element of, of just really mystery there. And I know humans like to apply, you know, something to the mystery to give themselves an answer. But if there is a creature up there that's highly protective of its resources and its territory, I mean, could that lend itself to those? I think so. Um, especially if you've got, I mean, these are people that have spent most of their lives, if not all their lives in Alaska, they were born here. Uh, they grow up hunting. You know, I, I feel like you kind of have to, if they say like, okay, we found this body and it's mutilated in a way that a bear wouldn't do. I kind of feel, I mean, these are people that spent their entire lives hunting bear and moose and in the woods. And if they say something like that, I kind of feel you have to lean toward their opinion yeah. uh, as being an expert opinion. So, you know, there, there were stories about like body partial parts washing up in the lagoon, bodies being found mutilated in a way that a bear wouldn't do. Uh, and unfortunately, like I couldn't, I couldn't confirm a lot of this. It was just kind of um, just word of mouth stories. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I had more information uh, for example, you know, I told you I was looking for Mr. Camlock's uh, death certificate, and I spent a lot of time looking for it. And I contacted someone at the state records office, and they found his. <clears throat> excuse me, I found his son's birth certificate. Or no, I'm sorry, I found his son's death certificate, mm -hmm. which confirmed that Andrew Camlock existed, yep. and he was born in Port Chatham, or Portlock, uh, Portlock, Port Chatham. Remind me to touch you on that later because okay. there's there's some confusion over that <laughs> but i confirmed that mr camluck existed he was born in port lock uh and his son died when he when the son was 14 he actually died of drowning um so but the lady that was helping me look she could not find mr camluck's death certificate and she actually told me she's like maybe you should try the homer police department mm -hmm not knowing that I worked there and I was like, well, trust me, lady, it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think probably it might be, there might be some, some of these death certificates and uh, accounts, uh, some collaborating, corroborating. You know what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm. some, <laughs> corroborating. Some, there might be some uh, collaborative evidence like tucked away in some family Bibles in some mm -hmm. of these native villages, or maybe in some of the churches Um and they just kind of haven't been discovered yet. And plus, this is Alaska. Like, it's not super uncommon for you to be looking for a record or something. And you can call up some little village or something like, hey, I'm looking for this police report or whatever. And they're like, oh, yeah, um, that stuff was out in the storage shed. And the roof collapsed uh, three years ago because of snow load and all that right. stuff was lost. Right. It's, it's not super uncommon for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And especially back then uh, in the thirties and forties, Alaska wasn't even a state. So there wasn't a whole lot of like, you will keep these records and you will like keep them in this manner. So there, there wasn't a whole lot of oversight on that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. a lot of times, like if you call the, the, the Alaska territorial police, uh, you know, They'll show up when they can show up, you know, like, oh, there's a storm moving in. We'll be there, you know, we'll be there on Thursday and it's oh. like Monday or something, you know, I mean, and that, I mean, that still kind of happens today in some really remote places with the troopers. Like they'll, somebody will call me like, we need help. And they'll be like, best we can do is Thursday. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I mean, you do what you can do. Um, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, what, what's the confusion first? And then, and then I had a follow up <clears throat> question to all that. So there's Port Chatham and there's Port Locke. 
Port Chatham is the name of the bay, the body of water, and Port Locke is the name of the town. Mm-hmm. So people here pretty much use them interchangeably. Like if I say Port Chatham, people understand I mean probably yeah, Port yeah. Locke. Yeah. Um, there's There's been some, I've heard it said that there was a town called Port Chatham and there was a town called Port Locke. That's not true. Port Chatham is the bay. Port Locke is the town situated in the bay. Mm-hmm. Um, but Port Chatham was named for um, one of, oh, geez, one of, an explorer ship. It was HMS Chatham. And Port Locke was named for Captain Nathaniel Port Locke, who came up here in the 1700s and mapped the area. And even he back then in the 1700s was like, holy cow, this place is amazing. Like, look at all these resources and the fish and the trees. So it's, you know, it's an impressive area. Uh, yeah. There's a there's a lot to offer here. Yeah. yeah, you really you really get to see the the beauty of it um, in the documentary. And uh, I, I was salivating over the blueberries, just blueberries as far as you can see. Well, just on one side, uh, but yeah, tons of just natural resources, and it's it's just uh, really a beautiful area. Scary, creepy, but beautiful. Um, what I wanted to follow up with was because we were kind of talking about just the the mystery of, uh, you know, the deaths and the disappearances in the area, people thinking it's kind of an evil location. What were, and I'm, I'm referencing something you said in your book, what were uh, some of the other legends of the area? There was some other stuff going on. So there's the legend of the dark lady, which I haven't been able to find this anywhere else except in that interview with Melania Kell. And that was a story of a ghostly woman in a dark dress that would walk up and down the beach. And like I said, I've only seen that in that one place. Uh, my favorite story, other that's not Bigfoot, is about the um, the kid on the dock, where there's a gentleman. He he's coming in from fishing for the day or whatever he's doing, and he's he's walking by this. I, I can't remember if it was one kid or a group of kids, but there's just uh, there's a kid sitting on the dock. And he walks by and he kind of thinks, well, that's kind of weird because back then, you know, people respected their elders more, especially in Native communities. And it was unusual for an elder to walk by and somebody not, you know, oh, hey, you know, hey, Grandpa, how are you doing or whatever. And he's like, well, I'm going to turn I'm going to turn around and say something to those kids. And he turned around and they were gone. And in my mind, I always picture like that creepy kid from was it the grudge, like that white (laughs) pasty kid like that's all i always picture like that kid just sitting on the dock staring off and then the guy turns around and he's gone um but that's kind of my favorite story worse that's it's worse now (laughs) and then um there's the story of the one-eyed people which is just like you know that's crazy so there's these hunters out one day and they see some other hunters in a bedarka it's like a little canoe and they're like who are those guys like we don't recognize them they must be from not from around here so they try and catch up with them and the other hunters like are trying to get away from them, like trying to paddle away from them. And they're like, this is really weird behavior. What's going on? So they pursue them, end up catching up to them. Uh, and finally, you know, they're kind of like, like, Hey, how's it going? You know, they're, I'm, if you, you're listening to this in audio, I'm, I'm like hide, I'm shielding my face, you know, as I'm talking, they're like, Hey, how's it going? And eventually they get them to, to look at them and they only have like one eye in the center of their forehead. And, they end up talking with them and they're like, yeah, we, you know, we're the one eyed people. We're from another village, like over here, far away. And we don't interact with you guys because you know, you're mean to us. They make fun of us and we just kind of keep to ourselves. And they ended up like 
speaking, you know, they were, they were nice to him and they ended up trading uh, some meat with them and stuff and, and sent them on their way. And then they never saw him again. Uh, and that's one of the, the kind of the weirder stories that comes out of port, the Port Chatham area is, is these mysterious one-eyed people. And it's, it's almost, it's almost a lot of it kind of almost reminds me of like Skinwalker Ranch stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because you just have these odd being, you know, you've got the Bigfoot stuff, you've got ghost stuff, you've got these like strange unearthly people with the one eye in their head. And a lot of it, I wonder sometimes, especially like when it seemed to ramp up in like the thirties and stuff, like remember when the, the family moved on the Skinwalker ranch, they told them like, well, whatever you do, don't dig. Mm -hmm. And then they started, um, they started building this, like this village in, in Portlock and they started, you know, putting up all these buildings and I'm sure there was some digging and just a lot of disturbances going on in the earth and, and stuff like that. And it makes me wonder almost if, if that isn't a similar area to like Skinwalker ranch and them maybe uh, bringing in all the infrastructure might've disturbed something. I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's an odd theory. Well, it's, it's an interesting theory though. All you need is a, a good UFO sighting over mm -hmm. it. And then it's, you know, it's in the bag. Well, there, there was a, there was a flap here in the seventies in the Catchmack Bay. No kidding. Um, yeah. I, I've had several people uh, talk to me about uh, UFOs here. There was like a, a flap just all like there for a long time. I think it was a year or so people were seeing UFOs huh. and um, there's a gentleman, uh, Chuk from Chuk's Outdoors. He grew up here in Homer and he remembers there was, there's a lot of artists in Homer. It's a very artsy community. He remembers uh, seeing a lady that would, she had had all these paintings of like this, you know, the mountains and the skyline. And there would be these like balls of light and like UFOs. And she was painting what she was seeing. And he, he just told me about that recently. Like I just recently um, met up with him and we had a discussion, but yeah, there, there's been uh, some, some UFO flaps here. Uh, it didn't, it doesn't correspond with the, the stuff going on in Port Chatham and the, 30s to the 50s but this was in the 70s when there was definitely a ufo flap here in the Catchmack bay area oh wow i i had no idea mm -hmm. huh well um one more question on the documentary and then uh and then we're, we're going to wrap it up here soon sorry <laughs> i appreciate your time uh where was there ever a moment as you were heading out there, um, you know, you, you already had all this information. You had that starter information. You'd done your research. You knew the legends, uh, the creepy factor. Was there a moment as you were heading out there that you just felt like full on fear at what you guys were doing, at what you were about to do? Not really. I think my excitement kind of over, over my fear. Um, there were some times when we went out the second time to, to uh, film the travel channel show that I got a little creeped out, sketched out because of the weather. And there, there were periods like we're like, okay, let's go ashore and film. And as soon as we would make that decision, the weather would get like worse. Like the wind would pick up. There were, there was a point where I thought we were going to, uh, our little skiff was going to get turned over because the, the waters were so rough. And, you know, it kind of started out as a joke, like, oh, somebody doesn't want us here. Like every time, basically every time without fail that we decided to go ashore, the weather would get worse. Yeah. And it started out as a joke. And then by the time it was over, I was like, oh, there might be something to this because every time I felt like something didn't want us there. Yeah. And uh, 
but the first time, no, you know, the, after I left the first time, I was like, man, I would like to build a cabin out there. Like I want to buy some land near there and buy a cabin and just go like live off the grid and look for Bigfoot for a while. Like I didn't really get a, a, a fear vibe off of the place back, back then the first time I, I really enjoyed myself. I wanted to go back. Uh, you know, I wanted to spend more time there. Uh, but the second time I was kind of like, okay, I'm done with this place. <laughs> yeah. Your, your second trip there was uh, a bit more arduous and, and less fruitful as I recall you, you know, saying, um, last bit here, and then we'll head into our final segment here is actually about your second trip. You, described seeing something uh, that was a bit unusual. And I was just uh, curious what your thoughts were on it now that some time has passed and you've been able to look back on that. Is this the, the second trip? The second trip. Or the first trip. Okay. Uh, yeah. On the second trip, you were standing in the doorway and you looked out and you saw something. Yeah. Well, it was a, it was a window. It wasn't, oh, I mean, it, okay. didn't, it had no glass in it. It was just like a square hole oh, in okay. the cabin. Okay. Uh, we were, we were in this little cabin. It's the one on the cover of my book, actually. Um, the, if you Google Port Chatham, you're going to see like that cabin. And we were actually in there, uh, filming and I was, uh, kind of standing toward the back of the cabin, trying to be quiet. And I was just, look. I was just looking, it had been raining, but it wasn't raining. I don't think at the time. And there was a, maybe a slight breeze, but not a, a hard wind. And I remember just seeing something like drop out of a tree. And the best I can explain it is it was almost like maybe a kind of a, a small beach ball shaped uh, blur, uh, kind of like, a, like the predator, you know, like the glimmer, you know, like when he's invisible and you can see through him, but you can still see something there. Mm -hmm. It didn't have like a defined human shape. It was kind of round. And I saw it just like fall down, like, and, I, and it, it, like when it hit branches, the branches reacted like something was on, you know, like something was hitting them as it went down. And I just remember thinking like, huh, that's where it had been raining earlier. So I'm like, I'm trying to rationalize, like, how did that much water <laughs> get, get, uh, you know, caught in this tree and then fall down. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things, you know, like does not compute, you know, and I'm, instead of saying something, I'm just like, huh, that was weird. What was that? And, you know, of course I didn't, I didn't film it. I didn't have any cameras going. They were filming behind me. They were, I think they were interviewing either Adam or Steven. And, uh, I was just like, huh, that's kind of weird. What, what the hell was that? Thinking it was some kind of weird, like rainfall or is some water had gotten trapped in a, this like pine tree and fallen out. And, then uh, later on, it's my turn to sit down and be interviewed. And Steven's standing back where I was. And uh, we're, we're doing the interview. And Steven, like, racks his shotgun, like, Ch -ch -ch. and he's like, there's something out there. Something was just growling at me. And it was coming from the same area. Hmm. So I don't know if it was a coincidence. I don't know if uh, maybe there was a, a bear or, or something back there. And I just happened to, and maybe it was water that I saw fall on the tree. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um like I said, if I, if I had seen it like a defined shape and like movement, I would be like, oh, I saw the Glimmer Man or I saw yeah. this or I saw that. But it was so ambiguous. I, I, I mean, I feel it was odd enough that I mentioned it, obviously. I put it in the book. But at, at the same time, I'm like, there could be a rational explanation for it. Sure. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, the, 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 the first trip when I got the, the thermal footage, 
was was almost kind of similar. Uh, we can talk about that for a second, real quick. Yeah, yeah. Because we're walking, we're walking through this like open area, kind of like a field, and there's a tree line in front of us. And um, Mary, the the female with us, is like, "Hey, do you do you feel kind of weird? Like we're being watched?" And I was like, "Ah, eh, you know, maybe a little bit. I mean, we're in the woods. It's always you know, there's a creepy feeling." And uh, I threw my thermal up which is just a thermal scout. It's got a range of about a hundred yards, which not even really. I mean, if you honestly, mm-hmm. <laughs> it says a hundred yards, but at a hundred yards, you might be, yeah, there's something out there, but it looks like a speck. Um, so whatever it was, it was definitely closer to us than a hundred yards, probably I would say 50 to 40. So I'm looking into this tree line and I see, I, the only way I can describe it is look like Donkey Kong, like the outline of Donkey Kong from Nintendo games. And it's doing this. It's raising its arms up and down, just like that. And, you know, I, I know about the history of Bigfoot sightings in the area. We're there looking for Bigfoot. That's what we're doing. I see something on my thermal that's obviously not any of us, and it looks human-shaped. And what do I do? I hand my camera, my thermal camera, over to one of the other guys. And is like, hey, look over there. What do you see? Mm-hmm. And it was our cameraman's brother, Toad, who was a younger guy. I think he was like... I don't even know if he was in his twenties at that point. And he looks through the, the monocular, the, the thermal and he goes, it looks like a dude. And like, and then he like, pa- they pass it around to like two or three, everybody. I mean, it was great that I got that confirmation. Everybody that was there saw it. Yeah. But, and I, nobody hit record and I didn't hit record until they handed it back to me. And at that point we're kind of walking towards it and it had started to like move back into the, like, it just, and it's not the kind of terrain where you can just like, I'm going to look through this thermal and walk forward. Like you have to stop and look down and step over this branch or move around this like puddle. You know, it's not like you can just charge forward. Uh, so I'm like taking a look, look down, taking a look, look down. And it, it just kind of melds back into the forest. Um, and I always say like, man, if I had hit, if I had hit record like 30 seconds sooner, like that would, I would be probably the best thermal footage ever. And it's, I guess they call it the curse of Bigfoot, you know, where you, <laughs> you, you see something and you're like, what the hell is that? Yeah. And then you're like, okay, well here, I'm here. Steven's over there. Josiah's over there. Mary's right here. You know, like, you're just like, it's gotta be one of us. Although wait, no, I can see everybody. What, and then you're you're passing the camera around like do you see that you know you're just in such disbelief and that's what you're there looking for yeah uh and and that's kind of happened to me a couple of times where I've just been like where you see something really out of place and you don't really say anything because you're like ah. yeah yeah <laughs> well uh, and the the curse of Bigfoot you know that that's um that's paranormal and supernatural world wide I feel like too I'm I'm more familiar with like in in a ghost hunt you know and your, your batteries yeah. drain or you know you both hear something there's no way to yeah there's there's always always something man i've never i've never had the battery drain thing um i did one time though i was in a graveyard and i was kind of doing like a little ghost hunt thing and i had this audio recorder that i i mean used for years and years before that and years and years after that and never had an issue with and i was walking through the graveyard like talking to my recorder and it died <laughs> The batteries didn't drain. It just died. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that's it. That's it. Oh man. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, let's, uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up here shortly. Uh, let's hit our final segment. 
we'll do final questions, final thoughts, and I'll, I'll let you go and get on with your day. Uh, so uh, first question I've got for you. Uh, I wanted to know what is the most definitive piece of evidence that you have ever found or that you've played a part in finding? Oh, geez. Uh, I think I'd have to give two answers to that. One would be some of the footprints that we found in Washington during the uh, Bigfoot encounters of the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in an area that just, I mean, was some pretty rough terrain, uh, pretty, not necessarily hard to get to, just not super easy. Uh, you know, a lot of deadfall on the ground, a lot of, a lot of sharp things on the ground. And we found uh, some, some small bear, B-A-R-E, footprints, uh, like in this little puddle, like this little watering hole. And then uh, we found more similar tracks, like that we were able to track them and follow them. Like they went this way. Uh, and then the second part of that answer would probably be uh, the handprint in area A. Um, hopefully, I mean, to be disclosed on what the results of that is, but uh, it's just it's such a bizarre, like, un, I don't know. I don't know how that it got there. It's just yeah, baffles me. It's it's a weird one, but yeah, I can't wait for those results too. We'll all be waiting. Uh, second question for you: What is a common newbie mistake while out looking for Sasquatch? Oh, um, I don't think we have enough time. For me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, my my, I, I'll I'll just give two short answers. One. Uh, use some kind of scale in your photographs. Uh, when you take a pic, when you find something on the ground, uh, especially footprints, use some kind of like put down a dollar, uh, put down a pen, or even better, like have some kind of little like six inch ruler or something to put down and take pictures. Uh, the second one part of that would be if you see something and take it, like I'm, it drives me crazy. People take a picture of something. And they'll say, look, right there, that's that's the Bigfoot or that's whatever, the Dogman or whatever it was. And they'll draw like a little picture around it or they'll draw a circle around it. But then there's no follow-up picture to show that it's not there or oh. that it moves. It's just the one picture. So if you're going to, I mean, video is, is best, but if you're going to take pictures, take follow-up pictures. Uh, if there's something behind uh, a thicket and you're only getting a glimpses of it take another picture after it leaves so we can see the exact same area with nothing there uh that that's one of my pet peeves if i usually if i see something and there's no like follow-up picture that shows movement or uh a change Mm -hmm. in 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 the whatever they're claiming is encrypted i usually just discount it yeah like like what's what's the stasis what's the normal here I, i I would have never thought of that, but that is incredibly important. All right. Um, final question for you. So you have a, a prior law enforcement experience. Some of the funniest people that I've ever met are officers, firemen, paramedics, because y'all gotta be. <laughs> would you Would you leave us with um, just a, a funny or just interesting favorite story? Yeah. So I'll tell you this. It's pretty, it's a, uh... It's not too gruesome, so I'll tell you this one. Um, I was out driving around on patrol one day, and I see this bright canary yellow Crown Vic coming toward me. It used to be a taxi, and somebody had you know bought it and 
was driving it around. So it's this bright canary yellow car drives by. I look, and I see the person driving it and I know who it is. Like it's a small town. I'm like, Oh, that's so-and-so that's that we'll call him Johnny. I was like, that's Johnny. I was like, Johnny ain't got no driver's license. So I called dispatch. I'm like, does Johnny have his driver's license yet? And they're like, no, Johnny's driver's license is still suspended. So I was like, that's what I thought. So I turn around on him, pull him over. And, uh, this kid, you know, I've dealt with him. Obviously, I mean, I knew who he was, so I've dealt with him before. And uh, I get him out of the car, and I'm like, Johnny, you know you don't have no license. It's still suspended. You're not supposed to be driving. He's like, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> and um, I said, so I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna cite him for driving without a license. And I said, I thought, I felt bad for him. Uh, and I, I thought, I'm going to give him a little advice. And I said, you know, son, I said, you're not exactly inconspicuous driving around in this bright yellow car. And he goes, officer, I swear I wasn't trying to be inconspicuous. <laughs> and it took me a second and I'm like, he thinks I'm accusing him of another crime of inconspicuousity or something. <laughs> so we had a discussion. I was like, that's not what that means. Um <laughs> I just meant that you were really easy to see in this yellow car. Maybe you should think about getting something else. And he's like, Oh, okay. So that, that was a, that was a funny, like kind of lighthearted story. <laughs> I like that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. Um, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, do you have anything coming up that you want to shout out? Oh, uh, geez. No, uh, check out my, my podcast, Alaska Watch. Um, I have a website, alaskawatchpodcast.com. I've got a little store in there. You can buy all my books. Uh, I'll autograph them for you if you want. Uh, if you're not interested on, in that, you can get them all from, from Amazon. Uh, I've got other things like t-shirts and little like Alaska-centric stickers and stuff in there too you can pick up. Uh, I've got uh, the Dark Coast series. It's still coming out on Small Town Monsters. Uh, I'm not sure when the next one's coming out. The last one just dropped just this last Sunday. And uh, I've got some other stuff uh, coming up next year that I still in the planning stages can't really talk about, but uh, you know, some Alaska cryptid hijinks up here doing something. <laughs> all right. All right. Very cool. Yeah. And I'll put all those links, uh, whatever you want down in the show notes. Uh, I just um, one final bit. Uh, help me take out the episode. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, words of wisdom or a piece of advice you would like to leave with us? Oh, geez. Uh, yeah, you know, have an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. Larry Beans Baxter, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'll tell you something else I'm thankful for. Mr. Beans Baxter joining me on the show this week. Listeners, pick up copies of his books, tune into his show, Alas Squatch, and stay abreast of any upcoming events or projects that he's got coming up at the links below. Follow the show on social at Paranorm Girl Pod. If you really enjoyed today's episode, please rate five stars on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're watching this over on YouTube, give it a thumbs up and hit that subscribe. If you haven't yet, I sure do appreciate it. That is going to be a wrap for today. I wish you all a very nice holiday. Go make some good memories. I will catch you guys next week. Until we meet again, stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open.